So let's recap for a little while what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We've been looking at what uh, injustice there is in the world, and I listed off a bunch of statistics a couple of weeks ago. Some of you got uh, a little upset with some of the statistics. Not upset in a bad way, but just they made you think. They made you wonder what kind of life we live and what kind of world we live in. And so let's recap some of those. And we just said, we asked the question, do you guys even care? I listed off a bunch of statistics that were very hard to hear. And I asked you the question, do you even care? The next day I asked, when you woke up the next morning, all the stuff that you heard about the night before, did it actually make a difference? Then last week we talked about the idea that we, sometimes we as Christians will hide behind the veil of our religion. We make ourselves look good because we're religious, but yet we ignore everything around us. Are we hiding behind the veil of religion? Which I'm also really proud of you guys, because last week you guys raised $519 to go towards ending human trafficking. That's great, but like I said, that red X may have worn off after you showered that night. Did it even matter after that? Did it still affect you? And then the question we focus on heavily last week is, do you see people the way Jesus sees them? And this week we're going to follow that up with, do you, do you love people the way Jesus loves them? So I have a couple stories. One, growing up, uh, growing up in a Baptist minister's home, my life was kind of sheltered. Everyone I hung out with were Christians, and they were also like 85. They were all old. Blue hair and oxygen, if you know what I mean. Like, they were all old. Like, the average age of my dad's church when we got there was 65 and above. There was only two families that I can recall that were under the age of 50 when we got there. They were, that's who I grew up with. They were, like, great-great-grandparents and, like, great-great-uncles and aunts, right? That's what I was always around. So I, I was never really around anybody else. I, go to, I went to public school, and then, but even then, most of my friends were Christians. They involved themselves in different churches. And then my life was opened, my eyes were opened, when I went two different things, across the, across the globe and then to college. Everything that I thought I knew was garbage. <laughs> I never understood my life and how sheltered and privileged I was until I left the comforts of home. I went off to overseas. I've heard you all hear me talk about a couple weeks ago that I, I understood racism for the first time. I had to leave this region to understand racism. Then when I got to college, my life was even more open. I just started noticing things I've never seen before. I was like, whoa, what's that? <laughs> oh, isn't that illegal? <laughs> right? It was just mind-blowing. I'm like, okay, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, thanks, Mom and Dad, for raising me right. But I'm going to talk to you about a couple people, Actually, three people, two of them who went to Marshall with me, and then another person who I met overseas. The first one is a, is a guy named Charlie. Charlie was one of those people who never really graduates college. He was always there. When I met him, I think he was in his seventh year at Marshall. And he just kept going. And, you know, like, this don't, I don't recommend this because what I think his method was the longer I'm in school, I don't have to pay it off if I die, right? Like, if, if I die while I'm a student... Like, I think he was going to his 85. I think it was his goal. But Charlie was a unique individual. Um, he sat in the student center by himself every single day. And uh, he came to, we went to a thing called Campus Crusade where Katie and I met. And it was called Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's called Crew. We went to Crew every Thursday night. And every now and then, Charlie would kind of make his way into Crew. And he'd sit in the back row and not really interact with people. It was kind of a little socially awkward. And <clears throat> I come from the sports background, so... 
Charlie was more of like the theatrical background. Like he was very just theatrical. Like he's just really expressive. And I'm just like, oh, no, stay away. Nah, I just social bubble is here. Yours is not existent. But the more and more I got to see Charlie just sitting there all the time, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to sit with him. So I got to know Charlie a little bit. And Charlie and I were very different. Not only because he came from a theatrical background or just, you know, I come from that background, he comes from this background, but also, he struggled with homosexuality. I remember him thinking, I remember thinking to myself, okay, he and I are very different, and this might be a little interesting. But I became really good friends with him. I sat with him almost every single day in the student center. And next thing you know, he was coming to crew on a weekly basis. Then he got plugged into a Bible study, and then he came on our men's retreat. It was awesome. He also really hated me on the men's retreat because I was in charge of the hike, and he came from this whole background of, like, I don't walk. <laughs> and I'm, I said the hike of, like, a four-mile, like, to the waterfall. Like, he was practically crawling at one point, and he looked at me. He's like, I'm going to kill you. I'm like, you probably will, but let's go. But he and I became really close friends. And he, one day he said to me, Scott, I grew up agnostic. Then I started getting involved in church as a high school student. Then I started having these thoughts. I got confused on who I was. I don't really know what my identity is anymore. He goes, and then at, when I started getting confused with my identity and I started aligning myself with these different behaviors, I started aligning myself with this different group of people, the church just shunned me. He says, no one cared about me anymore. No one loved me anymore. He says, and then I come to Marshall. I go to BCM. I go to Rev. I go to Flood. I go to all these different campus ministries, and every single one of them just looked down on me just because I thought differently and I lived a different lifestyle. He says, then I come to Crew. He goes, and I'm welcome with open arms. I'm loved. And he looked at me and he says, Scott, I know the way I live is not in the way God wants me to live. I remember my jaw dropped. He says, I know that God's got a design and I know I want to follow that design. And the only reason I'm even telling you this is because that you have made a home for me. He goes, you've extended the love. This is the love that you Christians say you're going to have. Well, meanwhile, the same time period, I met a guy named Nima, and I've talked about him before. He was from Iran, and I met him playing ultimate frisbee. And after playing ultimate frisbee, we actually kind of kicked him off the rec field. He was playing soccer, like, hey, this is our territory. We're going to play ultimate frisbee tonight. You're welcome to play with us. And if you play with us, I might even take you out to Sonic afterwards because there's nothing better than a supersonic cheeseburger and a large cherry limeade, right? No? <laughs> you guys are missing out. I gave up caffeine for you, or gave up soda four years ago, and that's the only thing I really want. But I met Nima playing ultimate frisbee, and then afterwards, my friend Jimmy and I took him out to Sonic. And I'm sitting at the BP across from Marshall getting cash out, uh, which basically meant I was checking into my mom and dad's credit account, pulling cash out. It's pretty much how it worked as a college student. And we get back in the car, and Jimmy's already like full-on sharing the gospel with Nima. And there's two other people, I don't remember their names, but they were also from Iran. Now, these are Two Christians, three Muslims. I thought, okay, this should be really interesting. And we just start chatting, start chatting, start chatting. And we just laid it out there. We talked about who Jesus was. We talked about what the gospel meant. We talked about what that meant for him, what that meant for us. And next thing you know it, we're at like Sonic for five hours. Then every single day for about six months, Nima and I were together. I never saw the other two guys again. But Nima was always around me. And then one time, I'll never forget this, uh, we were leaving a friend's house, and it was about 11 o'clock at night, and he just asked me a question. He's like, Scott, tell me what you really believe. And so I just 
yeah, don't, don't give me a microphone. I'm going to just keep on chatting. So I just started laying it all out there. And, and like, uh, we're 30 minutes in the parking lot with him. He goes, why don't you just come upstairs and bring your Bible? So I go upstairs, bring my Bible with him. And we sit down and just start chatting. And I was like, if I'm going to do this right, I'm going to start in Genesis. So I open up Genesis. Then I turn to Exodus and then to uh, Numbers and then to Deuteronomy and then to Judges. And I just kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going. 5.30 in the morning, I finally make it to Revelation. <laughs> And he's asking question after question after question after question. He's like, Scott, I really want to believe this because what you said is true to you. He said, but I need to think about this for a while because I'm not really sure how my family will react. Because his family was still living in Iran. They were still a Muslim family. They would probably shun him. I remember looking at him. It's like, listen, you have no idea the amount of people that you are now friends with in this region who will surround you with that love if that happens. It was mind-blowing. Fast forward another year, I'm over in South Africa, and I'm sitting in a Muslim man's home building bird cages with him as a mission project. It was really cool. And while I'm sitting there building this bird cage, for, it was for quail. The people were raising quail and uh, selling their eggs. While we're sitting there, over a loudspeaker, about a mile away, the, call, the Muslim call to prayer starts booming over the community. And like, he like literally dropped his instruments and just stood there, bowed his head. I was like, fuck. What, what do I do? <laughs> Looked at my dad, and he's like, just, just wait, just wait. And so finally, I was just like, hey, what was that? And he just broke down what the call to prayer was. This is very different social backgrounds here. Muslim man, Christian boy from America. Then afterwards, I go out on the front porch, and I'm sitting there with my dad, and this woman who is his neighbor walks by, and she's like, hey, what are y'all doing? We're, we're hanging out with Islam. Don't you know he's a Muslim? <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> what are you? Well, I'm a Christian. <laughs> aren't you all like fearful for your life? I'm like, I'm just building a birdcage. Like, I'm not sure what he's going to do to me. Just, just, just a birdcage. Oh, he's not going to lock me, lock me in it or something. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you guys are like white Christians. You don't feel like at all, like in danger. I'm like, no, we're good. Thank you. And I found out later that Islam agreed to be a part of this quail cage building ministry that they were doing. And what that basically meant was he agreed to build these cages. And if he agreed to build the cages, he had to agree to attend the Bible study on a regular basis. Not only did he start attending the regular Bible study, he started hosting the regular Bible study. And many other people around the area from the Muslim neighborhood started coming to that Bible study. Three different, three very different backgrounds than what I've ever grown up in my sheltered life. And it all came back to Despite our differences, we still had, I still had to show them love, right? I still had to show them the way Jesus loved them. So I ask you the question tonight, do we love people like Jesus does? Many of us will remember WWJD. What's it stand for? What would what? Many of us have that even on our, anybody have it on their wrist? No. Is it like a thing in the past now? We don't do that anymore. It's not cool to do that anymore. I don't know. Now it's like live strong, live strong is out of the past now, right? can't do it with Lance anymore. We have WWJD. We quote that. We say it all the time. Some of us in the past wore it on our our wrists. We say, what would Jesus do? Do we love people like Jesus does? What would Jesus do? And sometimes we ask that question, but we never actually want to know the answer. Because we think, if he would do anything other than what I think, I'm not really sure I'll agree with it. We've been reading out of Amos chapter 5, and we're going to read that again as we start. This is from the message version 21 through 24. It's on the screen. This is where we've been camping out the last two, two weeks. It says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I am fed up with your conferences and conventions. 
I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and your image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. It's very easy in Christianity and the faith culture to mess this part up. To mess up, do we actually love people like Jesus does? We've become so focused on our own faith and our own needs that, one, we fail to see people the way he does, and two, we fail to love them the way he does. We claim, to see, we claim to see them as God sees them, but in reality, we don't actually love them. Some even go as far to think that the people they want to see as Jesus sees are a threat. They're opposition. They think differently, so they're not one of us. I'm not going to love them as much. Or just like the lady down the street, down the street from the Muslim man, don't you, don't you feel in danger just because he thinks differently than you, that just, he follows a different religion? And some will even go far in the Christian faith that they are wanting to make sure that they have their own spot secured. That there are some people who believe that there's a limited number of people going to heaven, and yet those people are the ones who are sometimes most evangelical, which makes perfect sense. Think about that. There's only a secure number of spots, yet I'm going to go out there and try to convert everybody. Yeah, if that's the way I think, I'm going to try to secure my own spot. But some people actually think this way. So what do we do? So as we look at injustice in the world, we must see people the way Jesus does. And if we see people the way Jesus does, we will then love them like Jesus does. I'll explain. Because I think seeing, just seeing somebody is acknowledging them. Austin, I see you, so I'm acknowledging that you are here. You're here. But loving them is actually acting upon what I see. That if I truly see him the way God is, has made him, I want to love him the way Jesus loves him. Seeing is just acknowledging loving is acting upon what we see. See, we claim to love God in all we want, but that love must be made manifest in how we live and how we share our love with others. It's one quote that you've heard me say many times up here is, love embrace becomes love extended. If you truly believe in the Jesus that you claim to believe in, you share that with people. You don't just hold that to yourself. If you had the cure for cancer, you would be a brat if you did not share that, right? But now we as Christians have the cure for death, yet we don't share it. We withhold it from one another. We keep it to ourselves. Jesus told, this is a quote from Bob Goff in the book Love Does. It says, Jesus told the people he was with that it is not enough to just look like you love God. He said, we know the extent of our love for God by the way or by how well we love people. Let me say that again. It's not just good enough to look like you love God. So you can come in here on Sunday nights. You guys can come up here and form this little mosh pit up here, and you can lift up your hands and sing in, in song, yet you don't love the person you're standing next to. Do you actually love the God you're singing to? It's a valid question. The question we sometimes ask ourselves is who, do we, who are we supposed to love? God says we're supposed to love everybody. Is that really what he meant? I think everybody, maybe just a, a, a minute, small group of people, maybe the ones that just look like maybe, maybe just the Christians that I hang out with, maybe the ones who just go to Williamstown High School. I don't really have to love the ones that go to Marietta, do I? Just, I can just love this small group of people. Just like last week, we looked at the store of the Good Samaritan, and the guy walked up to him just to try to justify himself. He said, who is my neighbor? And basically what he was asking is, wait, do you really think that I have to love that person? Do I really have to love the person over there? I think maybe I just love the person who looks like me, acts like me, thinks like me. 
And Jesus kind of threw him under the bus and said the story of the Good Samaritan. But all throughout the story of Israel, the, the group of people, they thought so highly of themselves. They were God's chosen people. Just that label went right to their head. I'm God's chosen people. I can, you know, you're not God's chosen people. Will, I'm God's chosen people. You're not, so I'm not going to ever tell you how much God loves you. So, you know, look at my blessings. Look at your wretched state. That's what Israel always did. That's why we had the problem in Amos chapter 5. They were withholding grace and mercy and blessings. They were oppressing the oppressed. I'll read you a section from this book. If you ever get, if you ever a reader, I highly recommend this book. It's called Love Does. It's a phenomenal book. There's one section I want to read real quick. I don't think God is the kind of guy who forces himself on anybody. If people don't want to come to the banquet, he's not bitter or anything. He loves them all the same but he's not going to force them. Instead, he just keeps looking. He keeps saying there's more room to those who really want to be invited to where he is. He is like any of us that way. I think God pays attention to our hearts and enjoys when people want to get close to him. He knows our sadness and our brokenness. We want to hide from him. He sends people to look for us. We sing songs like Reckless Love, right? And I'm sorry if last week I ruined Reckless Love for you, Ryan. <laughs> when, I, when I shared my own little version of the Good Samaritan, I ruined Reckless Love for a couple people. I'm sorry. <laughs> Huh? He threw, he threw money at a homeless man. That was, you were, that's, you, you was hysterical, but I felt really bad that I ruined the song. <laughs> but think about that. We sing the song, Reckless Love, that God is pursuing everybody, that God's chasing down people, he's reckless with his love, he's going to do everything he can to get your attention, but yet, guess what? Some of you all, just like you're not paying attention tonight, are never going to pay attention to God. And guess what? Even though you're not paying attention tonight, I still love you. And guess because you're not paying attention to God, He still loves you. He's still pursuing you. He's still chasing after you. When we see and love them like Jesus does, we will then understand, listen, every life is precious. When we see and love them like Jesus does, if we recognize that he is chasing down every single person, not just the ones in this room, not just the ones who claim to be Christians, not the ones who claim to be following him, we will then understand that every, say every, every life is precious. For all of you Walking Dead fans, anybody? Walking Dead fans, there, there you go. That's it? Wow, five people. Listen, I was so tempted to share the clip from Morgan. Remember, all life is precious, Rick. Remember what I'm talking about? I was so tempted, but I, did, I didn't do it. But if, for those of you who don't watch it, you heathens, actually, we're probably the heathens that watch it. But in reality, in the, in the show, Morgan, one of my favorite characters, becomes this like, weird like Zen master, like, all life is precious. And he just starts like, everything is, everything is precious. The tree is precious. That person is precious. The zombie is precious. I'm like, you nut job. That thing's going to bite you. But it actually brings up a good conversation, this idea of the all life being precious. One of the most polarizing topics in our world today is the idea of pro-life or pro-choice. Some of you all just gasped. Because many of us will walk under the banner of pro-life. We fight for the voice of the unborn. And like many of you, or myself, we were sickened when we hear stories of governments trying to pass laws that allow babies to be aborted up until the day of delivery or even after and honestly, if I'm, if I'm being real with you guys, there's no other social or political topic that gets me fired up more than that. But we fail 
to understand really what it means. Why it gets me fired up. We scream that every life is precious, and this is very dear to me because right now, I got a daughter on the way, right? She's 18 weeks. Ten weeks ago, ten, ten weeks ago, I heard her heartbeat. I almost brought it tonight, but I feel like I would start crying. I didn't want to do that in front of you all. I can hear her heartbeat. I can see an ultrasound and watch her move. That picture I showed you guys looks like she's kind of waving at us, right? I love that girl. I love who she is already. So I'm fighting for her. I'm fighting for many other ones. But here's the problem. Because we fail in the pro-life argument when we're not 100% pro-life. And I just maybe offended some of you. But here's what I mean by that. And some of you may disagree. But to be pro-life means I have to fight for the life of the unborn, right? Yes. I have to fight for the life of the mother. Yes. I have to fight for the woman who's been raped. Yes. I have to fight for the men and women in slavery. Yes. I have to fight for the refugee. I have to fight for the drunk. I have to fight for the drug addict. I have to fight for the one who's overdosed seven times and keeps getting Narcan. I have to fight for the men and women who are abused. I have to fight for the men and women who have abused you. I have to fight for the one who's mentally ill. I have to fight for the one who's harmed you emotionally or mentally. And I have to fight for the ones who are on death row. I'm out... Some of you may disagree with that. I'm not trying to change your opinion, but instead I'm trying to lead you to think a little bit deeper into the idea of how we are to love, to make sure that we're not being selective with our love. Because many in that pro-life stance, many in the other side of the aisle, all these things that we talk about, these recent injustice issues, have become political issues. When we said the first, first week they're not social or political issues, they are Jesus issues. And they're not supposed to be, they're not supposed to be sides. Because God's love is not selective. You realize that God's love is not selective, nor has he called us to have selective love. You realize if God's love was selective, you probably wouldn't get it. You probably wouldn't be loved. If God's love was selective, you'd already be in hell. You know why? Because you don't deserve it. And guess what? Everybody in this room would be in hell because we don't deserve it. God's love is not selective. But yet, so often, our love is selective. We say things like, you, you don't know what that person's done. To, they, don't, they don't deserve love. They don't deserve it. Do you? Do you deserve it? Or you might say, that person's had way too many second chances. They don't deserve another chance. Well, how many have you had? How many second chances have you had already? Every Life is precious because every life is created to bear the image of God. Genesis 1.27. We are all made in the image of God. Not just you. Every life. Not the image of God that you have created in your head. See, I, in our world today, especially in Christian America, we have this bad tendency to create our image of God. Think back to the movie, which I've said this before, and like it fell flat on its face, but I'm going to say it again. The movie Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby. I like to picture my Jesus as a figure skater. Or I like to picture my Jesus as a mischievous badger. Right? We create this image of God that this is what we look, this is what we think God looks like. Some of us think God is a white Christian from America. Speaking English. Probably voted for Donald Trump. He's probably Republican. This is, the, this is the image that we create of God. And if we say this is the image of God, you who don't fit this image, you're not made in this image. You're, you're going to hell. It's mind-blowing. You might laugh, but it's true. 
We make God into our image, and then we bash people for not being in that image. But listen, it is pure injustice when we strip mankind of this highest honor. It's pure injustice that all men, all women are created in the image of God. If you strip that from them, that is the biggest disservice you can ever do to somebody. That is the biggest injustice that there is in this world. Everything that we can think of, racism, sexism, slavery, all that is is stripping someone of their dignity and stripping them of somebody, the label that is on them that says, made in the image of God. You know how like every single toy or every single device that we have, you look at the bottom of it, it says like made in China? It's the same thing. That thumbprint that you have is a unique imprint on your life that says, I am made in the image of God. And if you strip them of that dignity, if you strip them of that, it's the biggest injustice you'll ever do to somebody. And once you do that, it's a free-for-all. You can do whatever you want after that. You can enslave them. You can hang them. You can do all these different things. And some people will even go as far as to say, we can do that in the name of Jesus. We're going to read real quick out of John chapter 4. And actually, I'm just going to recap it because of time. But Jesus comes to Samaria. Remember, Samaritans, Israelites, did not get along. They did not like each other. Jews would go out of their way to walk around Samaria. And it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. And while he's tired in his journey, yes, Jesus got tired. Yes, he was the son of God, but yes, he was also a man. He gets tired. He sits down by the well to get something to drink. Meanwhile, it says it was about noon. A woman walks up. You don't go to the, you don't go to the well at noon. You don't go there at noon. That just means you're trying to hide because no one goes in the heat of the day. You always go in the early morning, you go in the late at night. This woman comes there in the heat of the day, and she starts talking with Jesus, and Jesus crosses his cultural and social barriers. He starts speaking to this woman. He starts talking to her about religion. He starts talking about worship. He starts talking about this idea of this water that will allow her to never thirst again. And she starts saying, like, hey, why are you talking to me? You are a Jew. You don't talk to me. You're a man. You don't talk to me. And Jesus keeps going on further, and as he starts pressing into her, he says, hey, go call your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. She's like, he's like, yeah, you don't. You have had five, and the one you're currently living with is now not your husband, you little, the world will probably call you a slut. Jesus didn't say that. It's me. Five husbands, the one you're currently with is not your husband. She's like, oh, I can see that you're a prophet. He's like, no, I'm not a prophet. I am the son of God. And it says after that, her life was forever changed, and we'll pick up in verse... 27, I believe. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Get this. Jesus just reveals himself to this woman. He just says, here is the gospel. I am the Son of God, and her life is forever changed, and the people who followed him, the ones who claimed to be believers in him, walk up and say, in their minds think, why is he talking to her? Because all they see is this Samaritan slut. They're like, why are you talking to her? But listen, Jesus did not see her as a Samaritan woman, but he saw her as a daughter of God. He didn't see the cultural barriers. Just because she was Samaritan, he shouldn't have talked to her. Just because she was a woman, he shouldn't have talked to her. There was parts of the Jewish faith that says if you talked with a woman and it wasn't your wife, you could be put in prison. And he's talking to her. And they viewed the Samaritans as unclean. But he didn't see that. He did not see the Samaritan woman. He saw her as a daughter of God. Meanwhile, the disciples only saw her as a Samaritan woman with a poor reputation. That's all they saw. But Jesus saw her and he loved her and he spoke truth into her. 
He did not sidestep the issues. He didn't go, you know what, it's okay that you've had this many. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, we're just going to sugarcoat this a little bit. No, he went right into the wound. He went right into it. And he addressed it. He addressed the very thing that brought shame and humiliation to her life. And because of this, she was genuinely touched with her encounter, and her life was forever changed. But the disciples only saw a woman with a poor reputation. They only saw the distinctive and defining characteristics that made them feel superior. They felt superior because they were men. They were Jews. They were chosen nation. They felt superior. They only looked at the distinctiveness that made them feel superior. They lacked compassion. Well, what, did, what happened after this? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So that when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the what? Savior of the world. The very first time the phrase Savior of the world is ever given in Scripture is from a bunch of Samaritans. And they should not have even heard this story, but, God, but Jesus came, crossed cultural and social barriers, and went right to the woman and spoke truth unto her. And because her life was forever changed, remember, she had a reputation. If she's going to the well at noon, she clearly had a reputation. So when she comes back changed, everyone noticed it. And because everyone noticed it, they wanted to hear for themselves what Jesus had to say about them. And he revealed himself to them, and many more believed. So what does this mean for us? I'm going to read one more section out of this book. But Jesus never acted like that. When you read the Bible, people, the people who loved Jesus and followed him were the ones like me who don't get invited to places. Yet Jesus told his friends they were invited anyway. In fact, he told them that the religious people weren't the ones who decided to got into heaven and who didn't. He said the people who followed him should think of themselves more like ushers rather than bouncers. It would be God who decides who gets in. We're the ones who simply show the people their seats that someone else paid for. Every single one of us are the ones who would not get invited to the party. We are the ones who would not get invited into heaven. We're the ones sitting at the well in shame and humiliation. We're the ones who don't want to be seen, yet God still says, come. Come, follow me. And through that, once we have followed him, he's now asking us to turn around and go back to the same well we came from and bring other peoples with us. Bring other people to Jesus. And it said in that section, I love that, it says, are you an usher or are you a bouncer? Are you the one at the door saying, no, nah, you don't belong. You don't, you, don't, you don't deserve to come in here. Or are you an usher? You're the one going, bringing them by the hand to the seat, saying, listen, I have tasted and seen that God is good, and I think you will love him just as much. So as we close this up, a couple of things I want to share with you. First is that we must be filled with the highest priority and the sense of urgency to love the people the way Jesus loves them. It says shortly after, right before it says the Samaritans came back, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. What Jesus says is that I don't need the food because they came back asking, are you ready to eat? He's like, no, I don't need food. My satisfaction comes in doing God's work, God's will. That is supposed to be our satisfaction too. That's supposed to be our highest priority and yet our highest urgency also. It says the, the fields are white for the harvest. Which that means they're ready to go out there. 
They're ready to be harvested. We're supposed to go out there now and do this. It's not when you guys are educated enough. It's not when you have enough knowledge. It's not when you have enough wisdom. God says, I want you to go out there and do this now. We must have a highest priority and sense of urgency. Do not be selective with your love. Second, this love that we're supposed to have is supposed to be cross-cultural and social barriers. Supposed to cross cultural and social barriers. It's not just for the white American Christian church. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the what? Say it a little louder. God so loved the what? It did not just say Christian America. It did not just say the Baptist. It did not just say First Baptist Williamstown. God so loved the world. We are not supposed to be selective with that love. The church must be the place where this is most evident. And in the close, Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. It says, But now the faith has come. We are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God. Through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all, what? One in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. What that basically says is that if you are in Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, there is no longer Democrat, Republican, left, right, conservative, liberal, American, Canadian, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Episcopalian, none of that, male, female, slave, or free. You are all what? One. In Christ Jesus, we are perfectly unique. Every single one of us are perfectly unique, but we're supposed to be perfectly united. Jesus prayed that right before his death. He prayed that all of us would be one. But the things that make us distinct are not supposed to be the things that divide us. We're supposed to be united perfectly while we yet are still perfectly unique. 